You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Uh, IATP is a global non-governmental organization, but we're based here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is where I'm sitting right now. And uh, we try to be mindful of the place we're in and participate in what's going on in our community. Uh, We do do a lot of work at the state level here in Minnesota. We've uh, often, as I've said on the podcast before, sometimes we view Minnesota as a laboratory for testing best practices that can then be applied elsewhere. Um, but I'm joined today by Filiberto Nolasco, who's the editor at Workday Minnesota and longtime Twin Cities organizer. Um, and uh, to, on today's podcast, we're going to talk about what's going on in the Twin Cities, um, uh, both in terms of social justice and organizing and public policy and uh, why, you know, Minnesota is a global hub for doing some of this work. Um, so, Filiberto, how did you end up in Minnesota? How did I end up in Minnesota? So that's the funny thing. Uh, I'm, not, you know, I've only been here for five years. So if that's a long time to you, then I right. guess that, that meets your criteria. I've been here for 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, or, I was organizing from the beginning. So I guess that counts. But um, I was in a PhD program at UC Santa Barbara on contemporary Guatemalan history. So looking at the Civil War, the way the dynamics of the armed conflict perpetuate and what violence looks like today. And I was ABD and it just didn't make sense to finish it, basically. Like I realized there's no jobs in the United States on Guatemalan history. (laughs) My committee wasn't that responsive to what I was trying to develop. They just... Not that they weren't necessarily, I mean, they were invested in various levels, but none of them had content background in Guatemala. Right. And it was, the project was just too complicated not to have people that were just really into it. Yeah. So why'd you stay then? Why'd you stay where? Why'd you stay here? Oh, why'd I stay here? I mean, I think um, I've, I really, there's several things that I really enjoy about Minnesota. One is it's not as expensive as California, mm-hmm. right? So just on the economics, it's great. I get to visit my sister a lot. I get paid more here in California too, which I think right. is just kind of strange, but is real. We have a high quality of life. Yeah. Right? High I mean, standard of living. The work culture is better. It's a 10 minute drive to work right in LA. I used to, one of my jobs was like an hour and a half drive one way, things like that. But like, I think, I think in terms of leaning into what you want to talk about, there is from a journalistic perspective, there's just at a really basic level, there's not a lot of accountability for large institutions in this state. And there's not a lot of intensive journalism around workers, labor, in particular in rural Minnesota. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a, a field I want to harvest, basically. Right. So I want to get to that in a minute. Um, so the way we got connected originally is that you were podcasting. Right. <laughs> and you had talked with me when I was at the Fair Trade Coalition. I was um, at Global Citizens Network a long time ago. Right. Yeah. So you, you went from kind of... Uh, the academy mm-hmm. into organizing, and now you're kind of back in journalism, loosely affiliated with an academic institution. Right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think of it that way. That's <laughs> that is, that is uh, odd. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, like, uh, I think, you know, when it comes to organizing or journalism, often what we're doing is telling stories, right? We're yeah. collecting and telling stories. So how do you go about thinking about that? Or how did, how did the background in organizing kind of uh, influence what you're doing now? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, in, in grad school, I was also an organizer because the teaching assistants in California are organized by the UIW. Mm-hmm. So I was a member leader. And I think doing organizing while at the same time really crafting and learning what it means to be a social historian, what it means to be an oral historian, were certainly 
related, right? Like mm -hmm. the idea is to form an identification with the worker mm -hmm. in a, in a sort of like in an ethical and honest way, right? I'm not gonna just make mm -hmm. up stuff to, so that we have something in common. Right. Uh, and the commonality is we're all grad students struggling and trying to figure out how to do our stuff, right? And so I think I think encouraging people, and then also like the big part of it is, is when you're interviewing folks that aren't normally part of the historical record, you have to deal with the fact that they're anxious around the fact that you're giving them attention, right? Like mm -hmm. I talk about this a lot, but I did an exercise with, with my father and the first thing he said was, why would you bother talking to me? Mm -hmm. So it's also an exercise in like helping them understand their own power, which is right. from a historic, from a historian's perspective, from a journalist's perspective, an organizer's perspective, it was the same problem I was dealing with consistently. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So when you, so now that you're at workday, like, um, uh, what kind of stories are you actually looking to tell? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the exciting part for me is I get up, I get to have a platform that is really legitimate. You know, it's really developed it has a history. It has a presence and there's a lot of space for me to cover whatever it is I want or whatever mm -hmm. it is that I think is a good idea within the scope of labor and workers. Yeah. And so this, the types of stories that really matter to me are going into parts of the state that haven't really been checked out. So for example, I'm developing a story on meatpacking in Worthington, Minnesota. Right. I just went there last week to try to get a feel for what's going on. I'm also finishing up a piece on prison labor that I hope to have done in the next two weeks. And, you know, to me, it's a population in, in Minnesota. No one has done a comprehensive look at prison labor. Mm -hmm. It's been a topic of conversation for at least the last five years intensely, but no one's done it here. Right. And it's just, it's, a, it's ridiculous to me and also kind of incredible. Right. Well, and that's interesting too, because, you know, like we were talking about, we think of Minnesota high quality of life, high wage state, so, you know, quick commutes, all that stuff. Um, but there are, you know, we face a lot of the same issues that, you know, the rest of the country is facing, but even more so in Minnesota when it comes to like racial disparities. Right. right. Um, so is that like a line you're seeing through this work, whether it's in meatpacking? I mean, yeah. I know in meatpacking, that's like there's right. 20 different languages spoken on the shop floor, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I imagine that all, you know, you can uh, take that view of sort of a racial equity lens and apply it to a lot of stuff in right. Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with prison laborers. Like, uh, it's a ma the majority of prisoners in the state of Minnesota are men of color, people of color, mostly black, and the state is 90% white. So we are, we're dealing with a massive equity issue or an equity issue when it comes to every aspect of what life is like here, but in particular, as it relates to prisons in the carceral state. Right, right. Also, as you know, the editor of Workday now, you get to, I mean, and, and as an organizer before, you were working with a lot of different organizers, yeah. a lot of different groups who were doing um, really interesting work. What are you excited about that's going on in Minnesota right yeah, now? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, I, I think... Um, so the, the sort of bread and butter for me also, like aside from these broader investigative pieces is looking at what it is that the MFE coalition folks are doing, right? So St. Paul teachers, Sathul, uh, SA26, those folks. Explain some of those acronyms. Yeah, uh, uh, St. Paul teachers, SPFT, right? St. Paul Federation of Teachers, uh, SA26, so Service Employee International Union, Local 26. Represents uh, uh, property services, property janitors, services, custodial workers, yeah. yeah. And uh, Sathul, which is a local sort of uh, worker center that um, largely was organizing subcontracted custodial workers and did a, has done a lot of work with the Fight for 15 and other constellations of organizations that are tied to that, like MN350, and et 
etc. So that's that's a base too. So it's a base that's a base covering unions and what unions what's happening in unions is like a, a base for workday. Mm-hmm. Where it is that I'm extending and where it is that I'm getting excited about too is looking at the organizing happening right now with the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers. They've had a change in leadership. They're changing their approach to how they interact with the district. Mm-hmm. And it's been kind of exciting to see the way in which they're sort of drawing attention, not only just organizing, but drawing attention to the inequity endemic in the school district itself. So I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, the Satul work, um, or you know, some of the organizing that's going around, going on with Local 26 and Satul. And the, the way it ties into IATP is that a lot of the folks who um, are in those unions or active with the worker center, like are here because of trade policy. So like, is, right. is there, a, you know, we had talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and like, you know, the, the idea that people willingly migrate so that, you know, off their land and leave their families to come work in the United States. The idea that they're, they're doing that so they can take away jobs is ridiculous. Right. right. Um, but, um, you know, you've, you've had this, um, this global international lens through your academic work and then through working with the citizens network. And so, is um, how do you apply that to what's going on in Minnesota? Yeah, and I think um, I'll do my one little plug uh, right now. So uh, a good friend of mine, a professor at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Jimmy Patino, just published a book around sort of the, the presence of the Border Patrol, the formation of the Border Patrol in San Diego and the responses to that from the Chicano activist community. And I turned that into a piece. I, I podcasted him and that podcast isn't out yet, but in the article I, I did, we drew really from, we really wanted to untangle this idea that immigrants take jobs, mm-hmm. right? And really wanted to talk about the way in which the Border Patrol, the way in which ICE is designed to create a sustained low-wage workforce, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, and that article came as a response to the Supreme Court decision that's somewhat tentative to sustain um, detention without bail for undocumented folks. And because undocumented folks are largely in private prison facilities who are asked to work less than a dollar an hour, mm-hmm. I was arguing in the article and through Jimmy's work that basically the Trump administration is creating, is manufacturing, Trump administration's immigration policies are manufacturing a slave workforce for private prison companies, mm-hmm. right? So, but, but really focusing on the idea that uh, they're challenging the notion that immigrants take jobs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But as it relates to kind of what you're talking about, I mean, I think I, one of the things that's been probably the most important learning for me moving to Minnesota generally is the narrative that I had about immigration related to my parents mm-hmm. is that people would go, we're going to the large cities, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Chicago, yeah. or other population centers like Denver, et cetera. Right. What, what I learned in Minnesota and what I'm learning and what I'm writing about as relates to Worthington is that immigrant communities are going to all sorts of crazy places that one right. would expect them to. Yeah. And sort of revealing that and talking about that and, and giving some attention to those dynamics in areas where there isn't a Satul, where there isn't other organizations that can support, uh, create some awareness, et cetera. Right. That's what really excites me about talking about immigration as it relates to labor and as it relates to working conditions, social conditions, living conditions. Yeah. Let's let's talk more about Worthington because I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with what's going on down there. And it's an interesting situation where you've got this large meatpacking plant yeah. that's attracted immigrant labor from like basically all over the world. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of revitalized the town. Now the town is, I, I think, majority non-white now. Yeah. And, and school age yeah. population, 70% non-white. Yeah. And, and yeah. Bus- their own, uh, it's, you know, uh, non-white owned businesses downtown. Now yeah. as we can. So, um, like 
just t- talk about that. Like you were just there. Like what was your experience? I mean, it's it's a fascinating place. Like I before I moved, but somebody was like, "How'd you even know about that?" I was like, "Well, before I moved here, I was just googling everything I could about just where Latinos are because I was like, I'm gonna move here. I gotta know where the brown people are, right?" <laughs> you know, my I grew up in a part of Los Angeles that was very segregated, 90% Latin American, mostly Mexican. Mm-hmm. Before you had mass migration because of mm-hmm. civil wars and trade policies from yeah. Central America. And before you had a large influx of specifically indigenous folks coming from Central America and Southern Mexico. So that's always been in the forefront of my mind. And so um, when I was doing my background research on just Minnesota generally, mm-hmm. I was seeing a lot of articles that talked about that. Like, mm-hmm. what is it? All these immigrant communities are in, in like small towns in Iowa and Kansas, wherever, right. and how they're revitalizing them. Yeah. And there was some talk around Worthington because of a, of the ice raid in 2006 or seven. So that's how it got on my radar. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually, the other thing that kind of brought Worthington, Worthington to my attention is I also on the side, because of my work on Guatemala, do asylum cases. And I had a client from a Guatemalan, yeah, Guatemalan woman, uh, had a client from Worthington. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, I was asking her just about her life there and what's going mm-hmm. on. Like, what, what is this place? Yeah. You know, so yeah, we, I went down to Worthington. The first thing you notice when you get into the city is just the smell. <laughs> the smell of the meatpacking, the, the chemicals <laughs> yeah, of death and, and despair. <laughs> you know, in English, we call it meatpacking. When I was asking, because I didn't know what the word was in Spanish, when I was mm-hmm. asking folks, they basically were saying death house. This, okay. this is the way yeah. it's talked about in Spanish. Right. Matanza, right? And I was like, okay, that's way more, <laughs> that's way more dramatic than, than one would expect. Uh, so it's a town of around 13,000, as we described, the majority of which are people of color. There's 67 nationalities in wow. Worthington. And I got connected through a Catholic church. So I was like, okay, there's no real organizations. There's a union. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a presence from the immigrant worker. Um, let me get the organization wrong. Um, uh, like an immigrant advocacy legal organization here. Uh, immigrant Law Center. Yeah, Immigrant Law Center has an office in Worthington, sorry. Uh, so there's a little bit of a presence, but you know, I was like, well, I'm Mexican. My family's Catholic. I should probably just call the church. <laughs> and immediately the woman at the front desk was like happily talking to me about everything. And she was like, well, connected to the priest. And he was mm-hmm. just this old, I wouldn't say necessarily liberation theologian, but very progressive minded yeah. guy, yeah. you know, he was a really cool guy. And he was like, yeah, stay in the rectory. Come on by. And I was like, okay. And when I show up, he's like, oh, she's going to stay a week. Right. And I was like, whoa, dude. <laughs> I got demands. I can't do that. I really appreciate yeah. that. But like, no, I'm just gonna stay the weekend. I need to get my feel for yeah. this town. So yeah, he was he was just like, yeah, there's and so his congregation. So what's fascinating about him and fascinating about what's happening is that he's like, yeah, I mean, this town is dying without these immigrant folks, but the white folks are hostile to it. They're having a really hard time right. dealing with it. And what they did, what they what they at least through the church, what they did to deal with it was basically basically create an apartheid system. Hmm. whether they had separate institutions within the church that dealt with their separate issues. Right. And he immediately was like, no, we're going to integrate. We're going to deal with this. We're going to have, so he developed his own basic curriculum that's rooted in, in my mind, in Paulo Freire and critical pedagogy to get people talking Mm -hmm. and get people to understand their commonalities. Yeah. Right. So it's not, you know, it's not like fully developed at a large scale, but it's working and it's happening in ways that he can and the ways it's available. Right. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a unique situation either, right? 70% of the agricultural workforce and a lot of that includes meatpacking and livestock is, is immigrant labor, right? So the idea that we're even going to have an agricultural workforce, you know, without, uh, you know, embracing diversity, I guess, 
you know, is, is just kind of ridiculous. Um, especially like, you know, for jobs in slaughterhouses, which, you know, are kind of awful jobs. I mean, yeah, like, the worst jobs. Yeah. So have you looked into the industry like more generally throughout the United States? Do you know how Worthington kind of stacks up? I mean, just a little bit through looking at JBS. I mean, there's, uh-huh. there has been, um, there was a bill passed a couple of years ago designed to protect some of the meatpacking work. Mm-hmm. There was a report from the legislative, audit, legislative auditor's office that talked about how that bill was kind of useless. Mm-hmm. You know, not, that's not their quote, but that's my interpretation of it. Right. But nationally, I mean, well, to take a step back, I think the reason why, so I wanted to look at Worthington. I knew that for a long, long time, for years. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have a chance where it made sense for me to go down there. Right. And I read this Bloomberg article that talks about, um, it was just incredible. It's just an incredible piece of writing. It talks about, uh, I can't remember where exactly the meatpacking plant was, but what they really hone in on is meatpacking itself is hard and it's mm-hmm. vicious work and high propensity for injury. But the real sort of evil is in the sanitation, the subcontracted sanitation company. Oh. And so when I was looking at JBS, this company's packers are one of the most notoriously bad companies. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've done a lot of work on JBS here, actually. Right. More globally, like their, right. their emissions, their use of slave labor, their, you know, Tainted buying meat. off the Brazilian government. Yeah, all which, sorts of stuff there. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> but it's the subcontracted sanitation company that's really the issue. Oh, really? Yeah. And so um, that article pointed, pointed to Packers as the company that's been one of the most notorious in the United States. And Packers is also who JBS uses for their sanitation. So I'm really focusing on folks that do the sanitation, less so on the meatpacking part of it. Right. So I kind of want to get into the weeds and learn about the sanitation process. Like, Not do you yet, know much Josh. about it? Not yet. I got to save something for the article. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. <laughs> we'll cut that part too. It'll take a couple of months before I'm done with it too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, no, that's interesting. Um, uh, so it's, it's interesting to hear that they're using so many subcontractors in the packing houses because Mm. Uh, subcontracted work is also what Satul is right. working on. Like this whole issue or, or this whole, you know, way that corporations can have kind of plausible deniability by using subcontractors. Like it's really right. interesting. And, you know, uh, the exploitation of immigrant labor, like it just kind of lines up around. It's weird. It's yeah. interesting. I didn't think about it. I mean, certainly having been around Satul almost from the moment I moved here, um, and absorbing that analysis is really helping me think about the relationship between the main company, the subcontractor, and the mm-hmm. sort of the dynamics of, of just basically disposable bodies that do this work. Right. I'm, I'm just curious about your thoughts on the labor movement in general, like more specifically in the Twin Cities about yeah. how um, it's embracing change. Yeah. Um, you know, because you talk a lot about what you're excited about is this work and what would, you know, maybe be the emerging labor movement or the new labor movement. Mm -hmm. Um, We also hear a lot about like, uh, you know, journalism shops and grad students and sort of white collar work um, getting organized. Um, And then there's kind of the old labor side, which seems to be like it's maybe fading, like in manufacturing and building trades etc. Like what's your, what's your initial impression kind of coming in and now working with this whole ecosystem? Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, I, there's a lot of learning that that's important for me to go through because I just haven't really historically paid attention a lot to the building trades, for yeah. example. And I really enjoyed uh, getting to know their world, their space, what they're dealing with, what they're challenged by. Yeah, no, I'm just, it's, it's been great for me to just really learn. I mean, you know, in some ways get through my own biases of who works in the building trades and who is leadership in the building trades and appreciate that they're the, they are really offering the only jobs that will give you a solid middle class income right now, mm-hmm. right? And, 
and that they're doing, they're putting a lot of effort and energy into shifting their inertia to be more responsive to women and people of color in a mm -hmm. significant way. And I'm, so part of my reporting will be talking about that, digesting that, mm -hmm. uh, dealing with that. And also like, I think with all unions, but I think it shows up more distinctly with building trades, they are always more aware of what suspicious stuff is happening, right? Mm -hmm. So when, when there's a non-union shop in some suburban city that's using wood that isn't properly treated or isn't approved by whatever mechanism approves wood, I can't remember mm -hmm. that. Uh, they know what's happening. They know yeah. that. And they know which city council members have like uh, supported that process. Right. I'm like, y'all are like major sources for this scandalous, ridiculous, these ridiculous things. And like, if we're, if we're, if I'm going to be a journalism house that like, truly holds institutions accountable, that's the sort of information I need to develop these stories. Right. So it's also like engaging with them in a way that helps them appreciate that they're, they're really powerful in the information that they have available yeah. to them. Yeah. So you've got, you, you, you're going to be having this prison labor article coming out. You're mm -hmm. going to have this article on Worthington coming out. Uh, what else do you really want to focus on reporting on? Yeah. In, in the next few months. Yeah. The other thing is I'm really excited about are um, sort of the, the you know, HRE has, a, has, a, has had a change in leadership. The Metro Transit workers have had a change in leadership. And I'm looking forward to getting to know what their direction is and how to understand and write about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, UFCW has been doing a lot of organizing in, among, among cooperatives. They're currently organizing in Seward. I'm a Seward board member and that'll be clear in the articles. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna you know, hide that, I'll disclose that. But basically it means that things that I'm privy to as a board member that are non-public conversations can't be part of the writing, right? Uh, and people have to consent to being quoted. People have to consent to being a source of information. And so, you know, it's just something you deal with as journalists sometimes when you um, have a potential conflict of interest that doesn't have to be a conflict of interest. So I'm excited about uh, things going on with UFCW. And I think, I think most importantly, what I'm really excited about as well, not most importantly, but what I'm also excited about is the ways in which people are organizing on their own in a heightened political environment in a heightened, um, in a, in a, in a, like a lot of people are in a place where their consciousness is being raised in significant ways. And unions in a lot of ways don't have the resources to organize everyone that wants to be organized. And so folks are going to have to organize on their own terms. And I'm excited just to get to know those movements, get to know those people and write about how they're uh, challenging power and challenging the authority or the perceived authority in their workplaces and improve their lives in whatever ways they can. If you were going to give someone advice on what to pay attention to in Minnesota over the next year, what would you tell them to pay attention to? I think people really need to pay attention to rural Minnesota, right? Like when I was in Wilmer, uh, Minnesota before the election, before the 2018 election or 2016 election, um, you know, being asked to do GOTV stuff. And I was specifically talking to Latino identified folks, Latino identified folks, and half of them were Trump supporters. And what that really brought to my attention is that each one of us has been challenged, influenced, um, what's the, agitated in different ways by different people. Well, that's, that's really interesting to hear. I mean, an IATP has been doing a lot of work in, in rural Minnesota as well. So hopefully, maybe we can connect on that in the future. Yeah. All right. Well, Philibert in Alaska, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more information about what you heard today, you can actually visit workdayminnesota.org. And if you want to hear more about what IATP is doing here in Minnesota, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. 
I want to thank Andrew Arisso for editing our podcast and remind you that you can download this podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. If you liked what you heard, you can give us a good rating. And if you don't like it, please don't give us a rating. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye.